Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Last week you were reminded of many things that would be different compared to our time in Ephesians, and not least of which being that we, as to the redemptive timeline, have left the substance of the new covenant and have re-entered into the shadow of the old, where we find things veiled and kept in type until the time of, of unveiling, until the time of light in Christ. But that would not change our approach to Scripture. We do not empty our minds of all things related to the revelation of Jesus Christ, for what we find in Scripture is the scope of Scripture is Christ Jesus our Lord. For it was Christ who said in rebuking the Jewish leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So we merely follow the instruction of Christ when we come to Exodus to find uh, revelation about him, and specifically in the categories of sufferings and subsequent glory. Secondly, we needed to understand the role the Abrahamic covenant played in the time of the Exodus. That the Abrahamic covenant acts, acted as the conditional forerunner and preserver of the Mosaic covenant. Lastly, that uh, God was sovereign over all that comes to pass. In the context for the story of God's miraculous liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is established in the first chapter of Exodus. This ultimately leads to the Lord making his home among the Israelites after making a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. However, this is not where we find the Israelites at the beginning of Exodus. There is no tabernacle there is no special dwelling of the Lord with the Israelites. As a matter of fact, they are not a nation. They are barely a people. They are more related to a clan. They are a family. And what we see here in the first early parts of Exodus is the unfolding of the Lord calling a people out of Egypt, and as we will see, out of darkness and into light, creating them into a great nation, fulfilling his promises to Abraham and even beyond, as he will provide in them not only um, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, but the type of the seed of the woman in Israel itself, as Christ is the true Israel, the true Son of God, and all these things we will take joy in extrapolating from his word and finding it in the intention of the divine author. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 through verse 14. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the law was, land was filled with them. 
Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who aid us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks. And at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him in prayer this morning. O gracious Lord, giver of life, giver of your word, we ask you, Lord, to enliven it to our hearts this morning through your servant. May our my lips be bridled to speak your truth so that your people may be enriched and enlivened by your spirit. We trust in these means not because of any inherent talent, but because of the veracity and the holiness of your word. May it be unto us according to your will. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that my kids know of, that within the Perkins house at any moment in time, it's not unusual to hear old rock music played, usually from the 70s. Though war is not something to make, make light of, I do like the saying that the Vietnam War has the best soundtrack. And I like to put on one song in particular when it seems opportune when complaining happens. The song opens with a choir who sings the first verse and chorus before Mick Jagger breaks in and the chorus goes like this. No, you can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you'll find you get what you need. If I had air guitar skills, I might break out in them now. But there's something that uh, Mick Jagger and the co-writer uh, of this song touch upon that is relevant to Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Because we find the clan of Israel, the family of Israel, is in such a state in the opening chapters of Exodus. They don't get what they want. They don't, they don't continue in the land of Goshen. They don't continue on in, uh, in good relation with Pharaoh. No, things change for them. But in that change, they find, and they will find, that they actually get what they need, which is they need 
the Lord to fulfill his promises to Abraham and ultimately, in, in, a, in a fuller sense and greater way, fulfill the promise of the new covenant. As I said last week, I quoted Alec Moiter, and he said it would indeed have been nice if Israel could have awaited its inheritance in security and prosperity. That was not the way it worked out. History is always first and foremost his story. And what happened in Israel's case was all deliberate and part of a greater plan. And so this morning as we approach our text, I want us to remember something. That as God's people, we must be reminded of his covenant faithfulness, understand his sovereign rule, and rest in his gracious goodness, so that as children of light, we may see where Christ has dispelled the darkness and where we are invited and even enlivened to live according to that light. And so we, as God's people, must be reminded of his covenant faithfulness understand his sovereign rule and rest in his gracious goodness so that as children of light, we may see where Christ has dispelled the darkness. And so we may be uh, compelled and enlivened to live in that light. And so we will follow uh, this theme or we'll follow this thesis under three headings, covenant faithfulness, sovereign rule, and gracious goodness. Covenant faithfulness, sovereign rule, and gracious goodness. In verse 7, we see the opening uh, remark here after the genealogy or a short genealogy of Joseph and Jacob is given. We have a testimony to God's covenant faithfulness that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. It is said that 70 came out of Egypt, or excuse me, came into Egypt, 70 in number. This 70 is multiplied and increased with descriptors of exceedingly mighty and greatly multiplied. We find that they not only existed and, and increased greatly, but we find that they also existed in a place that was of, uh, of their liking. If you recall the story of Joseph where Joseph invites his brothers and his, and his father back to Egypt, and he says, tell them you keep the herd because they're, that's detestable to the Egyptians, and they'll send you over to this place. And the place that they are sent, we come to understand, is, is the uh, land of Goshen, this northeastern part of Egypt. And it's described as lush and fertile area. I guess it was famed for its gardens, its oranges, its mandarins, its peaches, its olives, its pomegranates, and grapes. 
It has been like this for well over 3,000 years and owes its lush fertility to a 200-mile-long canal which still conveys to it the waters of the Nile in a constant year-round flow. It is an astonishing feat of engineering which to this day is known throughout Egypt as the Bar Yosef or the Joseph Canal. What we see here is that the Lord had uh, preserved and placed Israel in such a place where they would be fruitful and increase greatly and become exceedingly mighty as a testament to his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. It was the Lord speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15 that he said he took them outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And so we see here in this generation that the Lord is beginning to fulfill that promise. He will ultimately, in, in, a, in, in a temporal way, fulfill this promise through Solomon. Because Solomon will say he extends his borders in, in far-reaching areas, and he will have peace on all sides. The Lord is faithful to his covenant promises. Not only that, as we see here, what happens is you can imagine that the people of Israel being blessed in pros prosperity as well as posterity, so in children and in land and possessions, they may have found themselves in a place that they thought was just about right. They would be tempted to think that way. I, I think that we can rightly assume that those faithful in Israel uh, to holding to the promise of Genesis 3.15 and furthered into the promise of, of Abraham that they would have faithfully held that this was not their place, not Egypt, not even the promised land, was not ultimately their place, but a heavenly land is what they would have been looking to, along with their father Abraham attested to us in Hebrews 11. But you can imagine to live in good relation to a prospering nation, one of the richest nations in the known world of that day, not only live in, in good relation to them, but, but you seem to be blessed in, in all that you do. You're, you're, you're being fruitful and you're increasing greatly. I'm sure that means their herds increased. The, the land that they possessed increased. It seemed like the Lord was settling them here in Goshen. And yet, those that would have been faithful to the Lord in their hearts, as enlivened and regenerated by the Spirit, would have looked beyond such things to a greater land, a greater promise. And yet, we must recognize that they would have been tempted to think that this is just about right. And it is under that circumstance that we see that God has a sovereign rule over the nations because they will need to rest in this hope as they see his understanding his covenant faithfulness they would need to rest in the hope of God's sovereign rule why because he turns the hearts of men however he wishes he certainly does so here with a new pharaoh in Egypt 
Beginning in verse 8 through 14, it, deal, it details for us a proclamation or at least a, a conversation that happens between the Pharaoh and his advisors and, and they look upon the people of Israel and as man in his fallen state is, is forgetful. Is forgetful that it was Joseph who through his interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh preserved Egypt altogether. He gave them the plan to set aside grain in the fat times so that in the lean times they would have enough. And they actually became a beacon of distribution for neighboring nations. Oh, but this Pharaoh forgets such things. He forgets that Joseph was blessed not just because he had some intellectual prowess, but he was blessed because he carried the name of God. This Pharaoh rises and forgets such things. He looks upon the Israelites with disdain and fear. He sees the Lord's blessing upon their life and immediately considers it a threat to his throne. The people of Israel would have come in contact at some point in time with this decree or this edict or whatever happens here with Pharaoh and they would have been sent to work the fields and begin to be put into forced and, cons and constrained labor and they would have uh, rightly cried to the Lord and maybe in their sin questioned the Lord's hand. They would have to understand and, and know that we are never told all we might want to know, but only what we need to know. What they needed to know was that God was faithful to his covenant, and he was the ruler of all nations. He was the, the Lord above all. This will become the highlighting feature of the Exodus itself, for the Lord will lay aside all the deities of Egypt, proclaiming himself to be the one true and living God, even over Pharaoh and his household, so that as they go off to worship the Lord, they go off to settle in the land, that they would know the Lord that was driving them out or that was rescuing them out with his outstretched arm. Here, Egypt and its pharaoh is placed not only uh, as not only concerned with Israel's growth, but in reality, hating God and his purposes. For the pharaoh would look upon the blessing of Israel and not ask, how may I too be blessed? And maybe some faithful Israelite would have shared with him, you can be blessed if you bless us. For the Abrahamic covenant says, those who bless us will themselves be blessed. And he would have heard of the, of the warning that those who cursed them, them too would be cursed. But Pharaoh was concerned only with himself and his own purposes, and so he hated God. He showed his hatred toward God and his hatred toward God's purposes. He had already set himself as a deity or as God himself. It was known that the pharaohs uh, were uh, a deified leader. They were considered to be always born of some uh, divine happening. 
T. Desmond Alexander said Pharaoh's behavior underlines that he stands against the creator's plans for humanity as revealed in Genesis, that they would be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. What the creation story intimates in Genesis is that the plan for humanity is to flourish over all the earth in perfect communion with their creator. But we know that Adam and Eve spoil this in their covenant-breaking sin. But this does not change humans' ability to exercise the dominion or exercise dominion, but it does corrupt their motivations. This is seen very clearly in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, where humankind comes together and they all possess this great ability to build cities and and to erect uh, monuments, but they exercise it with anti-God motivations seeking to overthrow heaven itself. They, they want to reach heaven so that they can take their seat in the heavenly places with God. And so in Genesis 11, it's clearly seen the, the, the both ability of humankind, of humankind to do great things as well as the depravity of humankind to hate God while doing them. We see this in our day as well. We see this in all the constructs constructs of our technological society that are a wonder to humanity. We we go back, I think um, it was uh, during the Obergefell decision that Justice Alito held up his cell phone and said, what we're talking about today, now uh, that wasn't addressing technology, but as an example, he says, what we're talking about today is newer than this, and he held up a cell phone. So if you would take a cell phone, if you could go back in time 100 years and showed it to somebody, obviously it wouldn't work because there's no cell towers, but if somehow it did work, they would be amazed. Even the, even the function without the cell tower, they would be amazed. Actually, nothing would work because we stream everything, and it would just be a dead device, and you wish you could show them all the great things it did. But even in its beeping and buzzing, I'm sure it would be an amazement to them. Think about medical technology. Think about any technology that humankind has been graced with by the Lord, by their creator to do. What wonderful things have been done. And yet we see what terrible and depraved things are being done. Because man, by nature, as we've learned in our catechism class, hates God and hates their neighbor. So Pharaoh is hating God and by hating God, he hates his neighbors. He hates the Israelites. And, and by hating the Israelites, he hates himself and the nation of Egypt because the nation of Egypt will be judged because of his hatred of God and his hatred of his neighbor. But we see this in our day as well. And we may wonder as we see, as it may becomes more clearer than it was in the past, for I don't see there being as cozy as a relationship, at least in the recent past, as, we, as we're led to believe. But if there was any cozy relationship between the church and its government, as that erodes away from underneath of us and around us, as society continues to turn in, into their sin and being given over to debased minds to do wicked and unnatural things, we may wonder, as I'm sure the Israelites did, where, God? 
Where are you in all this? What is happening? Well, we must remember as they were to remember that we're never told all that we might want to know, but only what we want, what we need to know. And scripture is wiser even than our eyes. For Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. God's not trying to set up a Christian nation here on this earth. His kingdom is not of this world. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Yet they are under his sovereign rule. Because it says in verses 23 to 24, he, it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have them planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. Where are the pharaohs now? They're in your history books. Alone. They're in museums. Alone. My memory fails me to name all the nations that no longer exist, but most of them end in empire. Where are they? They're gone. It is the Lord who sovereignly rules over his creation. He rules over both kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of Christ. He uses different means to rule over each, and he specially rules over the kingdom of Christ as they are his people for his purposes who will receive his inheritance. And this world is to serve his purposes. Such was Egypt. Such should the faithful Israelites remember that God is faithful to his covenant and he is sovereign over all. Because God caused seemingly illogical growth for the Israelites. He blesses whom he chooses when he chooses, how he chooses, through the means he chooses. The Israelites may not have been able to see under the heavy hand of their taskmasters that the Lord was blessing them, but he was. Because it was by that, it was by that affliction, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. What nation dreaded those they enslaved. At least one, Egypt. Tertullian, as we think about Israel and we think about it as a, a type of the church, we know the common phrase from Tertullian, who says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We see where persecution is, is at its deepest. The church has its deepest roots. Oh, they may seem to be few in number, 
but they are rich in mercy. They are rich in grace. They are rich in unity. And so as the seed of the church, they are waiting the Lord to bring it into full flourish, whether under the regime of that oppressive government or by overthrowing that government. We know not the plans of the Lord in such dealings with the nations, but we know the plans of the Lord for his church. Finally, we ought to also see this in light of Christ. For here we also see the rejection of Christ first in Jerusalem and then in the world. Pharaoh's rejection of Israel is a type of Jerusalem and the, ultimately the world's rejection of Christ. I saved 15 and on for next week because we were, we're, we're going to enter into the story of Christ as we enter into 15 through the end of the chapter. Because as soon as Pharaoh creates a decree whereby he will kill all the newborns, newborn sons in Egypt, it is mirrored in Herod and his anti-God ways also. His place upon his magisterial throne only to be done what? Overthrowed. The house of Herod is no more. Such is the house of Pharaoh. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. See how the sufferings of our Lord work on our behalf. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to, and to this doom they were also appointed. Israel, typologically, is that cornerstone here in the early part of Exodus, whereby the nation of Israel will come out of and be birthed. O Christ, here pictured, we see his sufferings. We see that the world will reject Christ. And so by rejecting Christ, they will do what? Reject his people, his institutions. For the world has set themselves in opposition to God. And by doing so, they've set themselves in opposition to their neighbor. Pharaoh sets the Israelites to building store cities, as one commentator rightly observes, not for God's glory, but for his own. Yet the book of Exodus ends with the freed Israelites constructing a dwelling place for God on earth. Released from the grueling task of building store cities, the Israelites construct God's dwelling place. And we know that those 
storehouses in some ways are emptied in the Exodus. What, what they are building and what they are building up for the Israelites will be plundered by them as they are brought out. Oh, that we would see the gracious and sovereign rule of our Lord and rest in that. We trust not what we see and what we come to understand by sight and worldly knowledge, but that we would come to God's word and rely upon his good and perfect rule, his covenant faithfulness, and that we would rest in his gracious goodness. You know, as I said, pharaohs can only be found in museums. What we also recognize here and is not quite in my purview of what I read, but verse 15 as a deposit into next week, we see that we can rest in God's gracious goodness for the name of this Pharaoh is not God's concern. Our Western uh, proclivities want him to name the dates and the times and, and the names of these pharaohs so that we can check it and cross-reference it to archaeology and see that everything just lines up perfectly. But God's not concerned with Pharaoh here to name him. It is enough for us to know that this pharaoh was essentially an antichrist, and so he will be unnamed in God's history book of his word. But it's interesting to see that though Pharaoh's name is overlooked, the king and Pharaoh of Egypt, the, the deified ruler of, of, of the known world, who is remembered? Shephora Sh and Pua, midwives. Not men of renown, women who attend the births or attend the births of Israelite mothers. These midwives will be remembered by every faithful Christian who reads God's word. We don't know from God's word the name of this Pharaoh, but we do know the faithful midwives who disobeyed the edict of Pharaoh and obeyed God instead. And we see this, and I should have held you as well as my own self, I had a finger in 1 Peter 2 because we're going right back there for us to see that within this plan of God of, of sufferings, there are subsequent glories for we inherit what has been won for us through the sufferings of our savior here in first peter chapter 2 continuing on from verse 8 in to verse 9 we read but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Lord, 
Oh, church, this is the blessing of a gracious and good God. That he has taken us, people of no name, of no repute, we being anti-God and anti-neighbor, and translating us to a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think we'll be coming back here over and over in Exodus because this idea of darkness to light is the paradigm of out of Egypt and into the promised land. We see that as God's people, we must be reminded of his covenant faithfulness that we'd understand his sovereign rule and rest in his gracious goodness. So that as children of light, we may see where Christ has dispelled the darkness so that we may live as children of the light, in the light, according to the light. As Peter said, proclaiming his excellencies. Peter goes on and he eliminates malice and slander. He eliminates our old nature from that living. So us also as God's people need to seek to put that out, especially of our gathering, but even in our interactions with this world, that we may live uprightly before a nation who hates God and hates its neighbors, not for our own glory, not for our waiting and watching to overthrow, but for the glory and excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into light. Let us pray. Oh Lord, help us. We, your people, we, your own possession, to remember your covenant faithfulness, to understand your sovereign rule, to rest in your gracious goodness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you and we praise you. We ask these things in the name of our King, Christ, our Lord. Amen.